Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Boy, we have some awesome kids here at New Spring, don't we? Well, uh, let me join the kids and say Happy Mother's Day, and you guys have bought the presents, right? That sounded scary. (laughs) Guys, the New Spring store is open (laughs) at the end of the service. I was just reading yesterday about different things that guys get the ladies in their life on Mother's Day, and the list is pretty pathetic. I would have brought it to you, but it was too embarrassing because I was afraid some of you ladies might actually get something like that. I've been here 36 years at New Spring, but I came from Texas before I came here. And down in Texas, there used to be the story that circulated around Mother's Day. I don't think it's true. hope it wasn't. There was a guy that grew up in West Texas. I don't know if you guys know anything about West Texas, but it's like this big barren area. I mean, the Lord said, it's the ugliest place in the world, so I'm going to make it up to him, put oil there, you know. It's kind of of West Texas, but you could like live, you know, your your next door neighbor is probably 20 miles away. So there was a guy that grew up in a house like that. His family was dirt poor, but he went off to A&M, Texas A&M, and and, uh, learned geology, and he became a multimillionaire and... (laughs) I started to say the oil business, but down in Texas, we call it the oil business. And so um, he made millions of dollars, and he wanted to relocate his mom to Dallas where he lived. But she said, no, baby, I grew up in this house, and I'm going to die in this house. And, and, and she just wasn't interested in cars and real estate and clothes and furs and jewels and that kind of thing. So Mother's Day came and didn't know what to get her. So he thought, well, you know, mom, mom loves animals. So he went to one of those high-end pet stores in North Dallas, you know. Um, Galleria area. And so he said to the um, owner of the pet store, I want to get something from my mom, but she's very special and money is no object. So he brought out all these exotic breeds of dogs, you know, some of them four figures and five figures, you know, and cost. The guy said, no, nothing here is good enough for my mom. And so showed him some other exotic pets. And the guy said, no, I don't see anything. You have anything else? He said, well, I got one more thing in the back, but there's, we, we wouldn't sell at any price. He said, there's a bird that we've taught to say the Lord's Prayer and sing Amazing Grace. But he said, if we sold this bird, we'd have to sell this bird for a million dollars. And the guy said, nobody can afford that. And this, this guy from the old business said, I can. He got thinking his mother was a Christ follower, and he thought, man, 23rd Psalm and Amazing Grace, she loves that song. So he paid his million dollars, and he bought the bird and had it shipped to his mom. So Mother's Day evening... He called her, he said, Mom, what'd you think about the bird? She said, it was delicious. (laughs) That's not true. That's an awful story. (laughs) Mary Alice and I read the Bible every morning. We got kind of a cool thing working. She likes to read out loud, and I like to be read to. So every morning, 5, 36 o'clock, we have our coffee, and we're reading the Bible. We read the one-year Bible. And if that's a new term to you, the one-year Bible is just sort of set up where every morning you read through two chapters of the Old Testament, a chapter of the New Testament, a psalm, and a few verses from Proverbs. But in the process of a whole year, you read the entire Bible. Now, that's wonderful, but just being honest here, it can be a little bit of a challenge because parts of the Bible are more like an encyclopedia than a narrative. 
You know, this person begat this person, begat this person. And then you get in all those geographical things, you know, where the borders and boundaries of geography is listed and all these names of people that you don't know. And I'm going to be honest with you. You guys know, I've always told you I have ADD and my mind can zone out a little bit. I start thinking about the things that I have to do today while Mary Ellis is reading that long list. I'm ashamed, but that's just the way it is. Well, a few months ago, we hit one of those sections, and strangely enough, it's in a book of the Bible that's one of my favorite books. It's in the book of Romans. Now, I'll tell you how I feel about the book of Romans. If somebody backed me into a corner and said, Mark, for the rest of your ministry, you can only preach out of one book of the Bible, I wouldn't even blink an eyelash. I'd tell you in a heartbeat. I'll take Romans. Romans is like the Bible in microcosm. So it could sound kind of strange that I would have zoned out in one of my favorite books of the Bible, but sure enough, I did. And the reason why I did was we were in chapter 16, which is the last chapter of the book of Romans. It's TMI. But Bible students call these the salutations. The Bible writer of that particular book is basically saying hello to this person, hello to that person. We don't know who those people are, you know, but the person was important to the writer. In this case, it was Paul, and he's like saying hi to her and hi to him and It's kind of like the credits at the end of a movie. They're important to the people who know what they mean, but for the rest of us, we never watch those. Now, I think there is something interesting before I go into this section. I need to let you know that the world religions at that time were pretty well male-oriented. And even the religion that Paul would have come from, it focused entirely on men. In fact, in the worship services that the religion he came from. I'm not talking about following Christ. I'm talking about before he started following Christ. But in that religion of the times, they actually segregated the men from the women. There was like a court of women. There was a place where the women sat and a place where the men were. And it was so awful that the word of a woman could have never been considered authoritative when it came to giving testimony. Why do I point this out? Because when you get into those hellos, at the end of the book of Romans, one of the things that we see very clearly is that women were absolutely critical. Women were absolutely pivotal to the ministry of Jesus Christ in the church. Let me just show you what I mean. In Romans 16, where Paul starts these hellos, he says, be sure to welcome our friend Phoebe with all the generous hospitality we Christians are famous for. I heartily endorse both her and her work. She's a key representative of the church at Sincrea. Help her out in whatever she asks. She deserves anything you can do for her. She's helped many a person, including me. And I don't think it's Jesus' mother. There's another lady. But in verse 6, Paul says, hello to Mary. What a worker she's turned out to be. And then verse 12 Hello to Trifina and Trifosa. They had to be sisters and they had to be twins, right? Trifina and Trifosa. Such diligent women in serving the master. And then there's a husband and wife team. And this is a pretty well-known couple in the New Testament. Say hello to Priscilla and Aquila. I would have liked to have known what things were like when they met each other, maybe went out, you know, before they were, when they were talking about their first date. Hi, my name is Priscilla, what's your name? Aquila. Oh, yes, we were meant to be together. I have a weird imagination. Say hello to Priscilla and Aquila who have worked hard hand in hand with me serving Jesus. They once put their lives on the line for me. And there's some guys too. Hello to my dear friend Eponidas. He was the first Christian in Asia. I like this one, verse 7. Hello to Andronicus and Junius, my cousins. We once shared a jail cell. (laughs) 
They were believers in Christ before I was. Both, a lot of you are going to race home and say, boy, this is an interesting chapter. How'd you go to sleep? Both of them are outstanding leaders. Hello to Apellus, my tried and true veteran in following Jesus. Sort of makes you want to volunteer at New Spring, doesn't it? Join the thousand of you who already do that. You get the idea. These are, these are credits. These are hellos at the end of the book of Romans. And as Mary Alice was reading to me early that morning, my mind started drifting to the things that I needed to do that day. For a few seconds, my, conscience checked, my conscious mind checked out like Elvis. I mean, it had left the building. But my subconscious must have been paying attention because all of a sudden I jumped out of my chair and I said, read that again. This is verse 13. Paul wrote, greet Rufus, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own, and his dear mother, who has been a mother to me. Oh, we're talking about Paul here. And I thought to myself, well, there's got to be a story there, and there is. But more than that, and this is what I find extremely interesting, it's the intersection of two very famous stories in your Bible. Two well-known heroes, two families, two races coming together in that wonderful, beautiful story that the church of Jesus was meant to be. Well, you know who Paul is. I mean, if you know anything about the Bible outside of Jesus, I guess Paul is the most famous Christ follower of all time. Wrote, if you're holding a Bible in your hand, he wrote 13 out of 27 books of the New Testament. I think he wrote Hebrews. That makes 14. He took three and a half missionary journeys and went all over the known world, Asia to Europe. You know him. You know at least something about him. So for the moment, we'll leave him aside and we'll go to the other family. Remember, Paul said, say hello to Rufus. You know this family. You might not know it yet, but you know this family. If you've ever watched a a movie or a play about the crucifixion of Jesus, you know this family. Go back to that moment where Jesus is carrying his cross through the streets of Jerusalem on a path that we call the Via Dolorosa, or the route of suffering. He's already been beaten half to death with the cat of nine tails. His back is bleeding. There's a crown of thorns that's sliced through his head. He's lost a lot of blood, and now he's carrying a cross beam that weighs somewhere around 90 pounds. I don't know what happened. Maybe he stumbled. But what we do know is the Roman soldiers grabbed a man out of the crowd. Dr. Luke, in writing his gospel, says that the man just happened to be passing by. He lived out in the country. He had come into the city of Jerusalem. I don't know what he came into the city of Jerusalem for, but the last thing he expected was to encounter what he encountered with the bleeding Jesus walking down the Via Dolorosa. I mean, after all, how could he have possibly known there was going to be a trial in a kangaroo court the night before and Jesus is going to be there? It's one of those... One of those divine appointments. I don't know, maybe Jesus stumbled under the cross. And a thoughtless Roman soldier reached out to this man and grabbed him and said, You carry his cross. That man was Simon, an African from Libya. In that moment, he looked into Jesus' eyes and the weight of the cross of Jesus shifted from Jesus' shoulders to Simon's. (laughs) put this on your list of stories that you want to know more about when you get to heaven because evidently Simon was never the same again. He goes home that day and he tells his wife what happened. And then he calls his two little boys, Rufus and Alexander, and he tells them what happened. 
I can tell from the hums of the crowd that some of you more deductive are guessing the rest of the story, but don't get ahead of me. At that very moment on that Friday morning in Jerusalem is a very different family. They're wealthy. They're influential. They have a son that they're extraordinarily proud of. He's smart. He's disciplined. They've sent him to the best prep schools, the best universities. And although he's barely 30, he's already made a name for himself among the powerful elite as a lawyer and a prosecutor. And he's especially popular with the people who hate Jesus and want him dead. Well, from this Friday morning, years pass, and Jesus dies, and he's resurrected and goes back to heaven. And Paul, of course, he doesn't know that last part. He just knows that Jesus is not there anymore, and he expects this weird sect of cults to go away. (laughs) But it doesn't go away because his followers insist that Jesus rose from the grave. And now there's this thing called the church, and it's growing by hundreds and thousands as every day passes. And this young lawyer decides he's had enough of this Jesus thing and he is instituting his own cancel culture and he's determined to stamp out this name of Jesus Christ from the face of the world. And he persecutes a lot of people. There was a young man there who was preaching the good news of Jesus. I am named after him. I have a son named after him, Stephen And when Stephen was stoned to death, it was this young prosecutor who gave the crowd permission to do it. And now the people are scattering away from Jerusalem. And Saul, in his attempt to be a one-man cancel culture, has decided he is going to pursue the Christians who've gone to other places. And on the morning that we meet him in the book of Acts, he is on his horse or donkey or whatever he was riding. And in his briefcase, he has a stack of open arrest warrants. He's headed for the town of Damascus. He's going to go to Syria. And if he finds any Christ followers, it is interesting that your Bible says men or women, he is going to arrest them, put them in chains, rip them away from their children, and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. (laughs) But on that road to Damascus, the world changes. All of a sudden, there is a voice from heaven and a bright light that's so strong that it knocks Saul to the ground. And lying there in the ground, he decides not to freelance. And he he asks the two questions that all of us need to ask. He said, who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? And the voice came back, and I love this, I am Jesus. It is interesting to me. I didn't say this in the other services. It's always interesting to me. Jesus didn't say, I'm Christ. Because Paul would have known that was a title that the Messiah used. He used his human name, Jesus. See, if, if somebody had asked Saul, why do you want to persecute Jesus, Jesus' followers? He would say they follow a dead man. And so Jesus used his human name. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you. Which, by the way, if you're not a God follower yet, that's one thing I know. It's hard for you. That's interesting. Jesus didn't say you're being hard on me. He said it's hard for you. The world changed that day, as I said, because this young man named Saul put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and he did a 180. God changed his name to Paul. And the word of God makes this very clear. He began to preach immediately the good news that he had tried to cancel. But this should be understood. In the custom of his times, Paul's family would have disowned him. He would have been the quintessential disappointment 
They had spent all this money. They had educated him the best. They had brought him up. They were so proud of him to be such a high-profile leader as such a young man. But now to be preaching this weird thing called the gospel. In the culture of the times, they would have had his funeral even though he was alive. They would have buried him to their minds. And if the women came over to his home to meet with Paul's mother, they might have mentioned something about her son. She would have said, I don't have a son anymore. Well, in the meantime, from what I can piece together, it looks like Simon, the man from Africa, the man from Libya, it seems that Simon died and he left his wife to raise their two boys, Rufus and Alexander. But that's where this starts to intersect. I told you this little verse in Romans is the intersection of two families, two stories that you know. Because Rufus and Alexander grew up learning from their mother the ways of God, and they had the sense that God wanted them to be missionaries. And they were. And now you have this young man, Saul, this young lawyer, who too is a missionary. We're not surprised that they ran into each other in church. They had common interests. I, I sort of see this, you know. I, I, I know this is speculation, but doesn't this verse almost beckon it? I can see some midweek night. There's a meeting of missionaries, and Rufus and Alexander are there, and Paul is there. And when Rufus and Alexander come home and they start talking to their mom, they say, Mom, you remember that guy that was persecuting all the Christians back in Jerusalem? He's preaching the gospel, and guess what? He's a missionary. We met him at church, and we just had the best time. And mothers being mothers, I hear what she said. Did you invite him home to dinner tonight? No. Well, you go right back down to that church and get that young man and bring him back to dinner tonight. And that launched something special. A Jewish man in an African family sitting around the table and celebrating Jesus. <laughs> oh, I want to know the rest of this, as Paul Harvey used to say for all of you old timers. I want to know the rest of the story. I can only imagine the stories that she told Paul about the day when Simon had come home when he carried Jesus' cross. I can only imagine the exchanges they had as she cooked for him, encouraged him, got after him when he got off track, cried with him, and worried over him with all the things that mothers worry over kids. So much so that when Paul was about 60 years old and he was signing off the book of Romans, he said to Rufus, be sure to say hello to the lady who is your mom and my mom too. I wanted to bring this story to you on Mother's Day because there are three truths here that we need to embrace. And here is the first one, and this is politically incorrect, but I don't give a rip about that. I really, really don't. Mothers were dreamed up by God. The love of a mother, the heart of a mother was dreamed up by God. It is not the invention of biology nor is the invention of culture. I've sat in the classroom and heard both things. I can smell bogus arguments. I'm an old debater from high school and college days. I know how evidence is used. I know how it's manipulated. It's bogus. I'd be perfectly glad to take that debate every day and twice on Sunday. But I say that because we live in a world that's dominated by godlessness. 
For years, the narrative is that's been drummed into our heads is that we're all part of a cosmic accident that God as an intelligent first cause cannot be mentioned. And so for all of you mothers who go counterculture, for all of you mothers who teach the alternative view to your children, happy Mother's Day to you who tell the truth. <laughs> Little girl went to her mom's she was in a home with a mother who was a godfather and a dad who was, believed in Darwinian evolution. And she said to her mom, asked her mom, she said, how do we all get here? And her mom said, well, God created a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and they had kids, and they grew up, and they had kids, and they, and, and they grew up and had kids, and ultimately it came down to you and me, and that's how we all got here. Then she went to her dad and asked him, and she got very confused and came back to her mother and said, I asked you how we got here, and you said God created a man and a woman, and they had kids. I asked dad how I got here, and he said we all started in primordial ooze that became frogs and then became monkeys, and we came from them. She said, I don't understand. Her mother said, baby, it's real easy to understand. I told you about my side of the family. <laughs> and your dad told me about his. You say, Mark, I'm not really sure where the importance is in this discussion. <laughs> well, we better get acquainted with it in the world we live in in 2021. Because you have to understand, when you lose the designer, you lose the design. You lose the design, you lose functionality. We're living in a world today where there's all kinds of confusion about gender roles. And we're also living in a time where there is this cultural insanity, this cultural arrogance says we will rewrite the ground rules of creation. And whether you agree or disagree with that, I'll tell you one thing that's universal. There is going to be a high price to pay for this social, en social engineering. Already, we're hearing stories of men and women behaving in ways so outside of nature that it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Hey, I've not led a sheltered life. I've had the privilege of being pastor of a great church for many, many years, and I've heard just about every kind of story that you can hear. But every once in a while, there's something that still shakes me. I was watching the news back in March or reading the news. I can't remember which, but there was a story that, and I'm not very emotional, but when I got through reading it, I broke into tears. A little after 10 o'clock on Saturday, Sunday morning, back in March, 29-year-old Brittany Gosney and her 42-year-old boyfriend walked into a Middletown, Ohio police station. I mean, this is middle America. I've spoken in Middletown a number of times. And she reported that her Six-year-old son James was missing, but they were lying. She had taken him to the park to abandon him. And when he tried to get back into her car, she ran over him. Now, you, here's the thing. You don't need me to tell you that these are not stories of the decade. These are things that come out every day. See, here's the thing. It's an expensive thing. It's an inordinately expensive thing. When a culture decides that it knows more than God and it decides it's going to rewrite the rules and the guidelines, here's the thing. When you lose the designer, you lose the design. When you lose the design, you lose functionality. One of the greatest evidences of God's love is the love of a mother. By the way, it goes deeper than that. 
The Bible tells us that we are made in God's image, but it wasn't just that God made men in his image. He also made women in his image. And, and I, I don't, this is kind of above my pay grade, but one of the things that I see is that God's attributes are so massive, he could not just make one gender in his image. He made both genders in his image. How can I prove that? Genesis 1.27, look at this. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. They're... Attributes of a man that God invested in a man. There are attributes of God that he invested in women. And I know that's politically incorrect, but as I said, I couldn't give a rip about that. It's fact. In saying this, I sense what we talked about. In Isaiah 66, verse 13, God said, I will comfort you there like a mother comforts her child. And I know there are a lot of men who are compassionate and loving, but no man can love like a mother loves. And I think God has given us the love of a mother to help us understand some of his compassion and his care and his nurturing for us. In fact, I think every mother here, it would be interesting to hear this. I think just about every mother here could say that she has learned a lot about the love of God with the birth of her first child. In his book, Unbelievable, Justin Briley tells the story of Jennifer Fulwiler. Some of you may know her as Jen Fulwiler. She's a communicator and author. But she came from a family that rejected the very premise of God. Jennifer says that she never remembers a time when she believed in God as a child. She was raised on a diet of science and reason. At, the night, at night, she didn't read the Bible. She read Carl Sagan. And she, all through her years of growing up in college years and early adulthood, she'd accepted that the world behaved according to a set of natural laws and science was the way of understanding everything. So for years, she remained an unchallenged atheist. But shortly after the birth of her first child, her thinking was challenged. I'm going to let her pick it up at this point. Jennifer writes, I looked down and thought, what is this baby? And I thought, from a pure non-theist materialist perspective, he's a randomly evolved collection of chemical reactions. And I realized if that's true, then all the love I feel for him is nothing more than chemical reactions in my brain. And I looked down at him and I thought, that's not true. It's not the truth. She became a Christ follower and now writes and speaks as an effective communicator for Christ. Motherhood was dreamed up by God. Number two, today is a day, as every day, to honor our mothers. Now, at the moment I say that, I realize I've stepped into it because there are some of you out there who are saying, but you don't know my mom. <laughs> my mom was not perfect, neither is her kid. I should have encouraged you, some of you to hold on to something solid before I made that comment, but it, <laughs> neither is her kid. I just think it's important for us, whatever your relationship with your mom is, I think it's important to realize it's a hard job. It doesn't come with a manual, and every kid is different. Speaking of holding on to something solid, I want to talk to every young family here who just had your first kid, and you've had your kid about a year, okay? I want to talk to you for a moment, because you think you've got it figured out, <laughs> Right? You're like, oh, I've got this parenting thing figured out. It is so, I got it, got it, got it, got it, got it now. 
Well, let me tell you what's going to happen before you have your next kid, okay? <laughs> Do you remember when you were in college? And there was like this course that everybody on the campus had to take, and they're like six hours of the same course. And you're like second or third hour, and you find somebody who's in the first hour, on, you know, after the final exam. And you ask this kid, friend, what, what's on the test? And the kid tells you, you know, this is on the test, this question's on there. You, you walk into the class, you think, oh, I'm going to ace this exam. And then you get in there and you find out the professor changed all the questions. Well, that's what it's like to have a second kid. All the questions get changed. But hey, I, I don't want to be too tried or flip. I understand that for some of you, your, your experience with your mom was beyond painful. But if nothing else, let's start here. She carried you in her body for nine months and gave birth to you. (laughs) One of the silliest things I've ever said on stage, being a man, pregnancy is no walk in the park. (laughs) And childbirth either, for that matter. And I want you to consider something for a moment. After 1973, she didn't have to have you. Did you know in America we've aborted 60 million babies? Just so you have a benchmark for that, that would be equivalent to the population of California and Florida. So even if your relationship with your mom wasn't perfect, let's just start with this. She carried you in her body and gave birth to you. I know that almost all the students and kids are in kids' world and student, you know, our student ministries right now, but just in case I'm talking to any teenager here and there's a teenager who says, my mom didn't get anything for me. I want this and I want that. She didn't. I just want you to understand something. According to statistics, in 2020, it costs $284,000 to raise a kid from birth to age 18. Your mama could have had a new house. And if she'd been so inclined, she could have had a Ferrari. Now don't start this stuff. Your mama doesn't buy you nothing, okay? For most of us, there's so much more. The Bible tells us to honor our father and mother. You know what the word honor means? It comes from the word that means to value. And for all of you who have your mother available, you need to value her today on her terms. Well, real quickly, and I don't have time to, I'll just let you do the application on this. There are some things that many of us need to be thankful to our mothers for today. Sacrifice. For many of us, our moms sacrificed more than we can ever imagine. Silly story, but it sort of helps me understand kids like in second, third grade, and they're learning fractions in math. And teacher's putting a word problem to one of the kids. She said, Rory, if you're having pie for dessert, and there's seven of you in the family, and your mom and your dad and five kids. What fraction of that pie will you get? He said one-sixth. No, Rory, you didn't understand. So there's seven of you, your mom, your dad, and five kids, and your mom is serving pie. What fraction will you get? He said one-sixth. She said, Rory, you don't know much about fractions. He said, no, you don't know much about my mama. He said, if we had pie, there were seven of us. Mom would just say she didn't need any pie that night. Now, that's silly, isn't it? But you know what? There are a lot of situations in our lives where we look back on our moms and there were times when she just decided she didn't need something. Are you hearing me tonight, today? She just didn't need it because you were there. Protection. (laughs) Maybe even overprotection. 
There's something about a mom that just wants to protect. And for all of you who are young adults, you do know in many cases that goes beyond childhood. You know, I mean, how many of you are 50 years old, you still get a call from your mom? Are you eating right? <laughs> I came across this letter. A woman was writing to the president of a, of a college, a university, where her son had been accepted. She said, my son has been accepted for admission to your college and soon he'll be leaving me. I am writing to ask you that you give your personal attention to the selection of his roommate. I want to be sure that his roommate is not the kind of person who uses questionable language, tells bad jokes, smokes, drinks, or chases women. I hope you will understand why I'm appealing to you directly. You see, this is the very first time my son will ever be away from home, except for the three years he spent in the Marine Corps. (laughs) We could talk about teaching. There are so many things that are part of my core existence that I learned from my mother. I'll just let you apply that, and we'll go to the last and third point. This story reminds us that there have been women in our lives who were not our birth mothers who have been like a mother to us. Maybe because of geography, you couldn't be with your mom. Or maybe your mom passed. Could it be neither one of those? It's just there's a lady in your life who had the heart of a mother, and she was a mother to you. Could have been somebody you went to church with. Could have been a next door neighbor, but just somebody who looked out. She just had the heart of a mother. And it spilled over from her own children, like Rufus's mother. And like Paul, it landed on you. I'm out of time, and I can't spend too much time here. But there's a story that this always reminds me of. I don't have many heroes in my life. Most of my heroes have been communicators of God's word. And one of my greatest heroes was E.V. Hill. He's with the Lord now. E.V. was one of the greatest pastors America ever had. He pastored out in the Watts section of L.A. (laughs) And like me, as many years as E.V. pastored out in L.A., he never let his audience forget that he came from Texas. And E.V. grew up, he was African-American. He grew up in a very poor part of East Texas, a little north of Houston, in the worst part of the Depression. And when Evie came along, he was the fifth of five kids, and his mother just frankly didn't have enough food in the house to feed another mouth. And so she sent four-year-old Ed, as he was known then, to live with a friend of hers in a little town, a little East Texas town called Sweet Home. Evie said he never called her by her name, he just called her Mama. And all the time Ed was growing up, the woman he called Mama taught him about God. And over and over, she told him that God did great things and he had a wonderful plan for his life. She helped him graduate from high school. He was the only student to graduate that year from that little country school in East Texas. And she insisted that he go to a wonderful university in Texas, Prairie View. Mama took Ed to the bus station, gave him a ticket and $5 and said, now baby, you go off to Prairie View and Mama's going to be praying for you. He said when he got to Prairie View, he had exactly a dollar and 90 cents in his pocket and he heard real quickly that he would have to have $80 to register. 
I wish I'd had the actual clip of his message. I'll get it for you someday and we'll play it. But I love how Evie takes it from there. He said, I got into line and the devil said to me, get out of line. But I heard mama saying in my ear, I'll be praying for you. He said, I stood in line on mama's prayer. Soon there was another student ahead of me and I began to get nervous, but I stayed in line. And just about the time the other student got all of her stuff and turned away, Dr. Drew touched me on the shoulder and he said, are you Ed Hill? And I said, yes. Are you Ed Hill from Sweet Home? I said, yes. Have you paid yet? He said, not quite. Dr. Drew said, we've been looking for you all this morning. I said, what do you want with me? He said, we have a four-year scholarship that will pay your room, board, and tuition and give you $30 a month to spend. And E.B. said, when I heard that, I heard Mama say, I will be praying for you. Like a mother. That's the title of this message. Is there somebody in your life who was like a mother? Like Rufus and Alexander's mother was to Paul? You may have another present to buy. You may have another card to send. In fact, some of you right now, as soon as you get out of this place, you're going to whip your phone out and you're going to send a text. Because there was somebody in your life who was like a mother. Well, I'm in overtime. I got one more place to go and I'll be finished. <laughs> I've been pastor here for almost 36 years and I've been preaching ever since I was 16. So I have extensive files of stuff that I've thrown, stuff I've thrown into the file, but I'll read this later. As I was pawing through that old file this week, I came across something I put in my file a long time ago. It was a story. It happened out in California. A guy named James Lawson left his home to apply for a job, and about an hour later, his wife Patsy, his 36-year-old wife Patsy, left for her fifth-grade teaching job down in Riverside. She left with her two kids, five-year-old Susan, two-year-old Gerald. She was going to drop them off at the babysitter, but she never got there. Eight and a half hours later, James found his wife and daughter dead in their wrecked car upside down in a cold mountain stream. And little Gerald was barely alive, but he was alive for a reason. Because in that 48-degree water, when they found the car, Patsy's arms were locked in death, holding Gerald up above the water in the car. For hours, she had held her toddler afloat and finally died with her arms locked in that position. Down below, I had scribbled this sentence. She did what it took so that her baby could live. That reminds me of somebody else. His arms weren't locked in this position. He died with his arms locked in this position. So that you could live. Every person who's been born who's listening to my voice in South or North or Italian, online or on television, every person has been born here. You, you were born with a cosmically fatal problem. You're a sinner, and I am too. Now, you know what? That may not mean very much to you today, because you and I, <laughs> we're not exactly at the finish line. And in this world that you and I live in, we think, tend to think about stuff like, what am I going to buy? How much money do I have? Where am I going to go to college? Who am I going to get into a relationship with? And all those kinds of things. And so when I say to you today, 
that you and I are sinners, it may sound like, oh, that's just not something I'm going to be concerned about today. But you will be concerned about it. In fact, there will come a moment when there's nothing else that you're concerned about. There's even a situation like this in the world that we live in. If you're indicted for a crime and you have to go into the courthouse to stand trial, I promise you, you're not going to care at all about what you do for a living, who you might be in a relationship with, because your mind's going to be absorbed with one thing. I'm under indictment. And the reason why I go there is when we go to heaven, when we step into heaven, all human beings are basically going to go to a judgment first. And the question that's going to be asked is, can I stay here? And that's why it gets really important that we're all under indictment. Because at that moment, you won't think about anything else. It's just that you've got an indictment. Do you know what the message of the Bible is? That's why I always say I hate religion. The Bible's not about religion. It's about something else. The Bible is about a way to settle out of court. Because somebody, frankly, has taken the punishment for your indictment. Jesus Christ, God in skin, came into our world, ran the table for 33 years, never did anything wrong, took that perfect life, laid it down on a Roman cross, and he paid the price for your indictment so that when anyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus walks into heaven, they're already settled. They settled out of court. Not because we're better than anybody else, just because we knew we weren't. And when Jesus died on the cross with his arms locked out like this, he was paying the price for our sin. You want to settle out of court? You can do it today. The book I talked about, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. See, he's paid the price. He just wants you to accept the payment. And since he rose from the grave, he wants you to receive him as Lord. I'm going to do something with you on this Mother's Day. I can't think of a better time because here's the thing. Some of you, your mothers prayed for you for this very moment. I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads with me, even if you've already prayed this prayer. These are not magic words. It's just you got to mean it in your heart. So I'm going to say it real slowly, and you can decide if you want to say this to God. You ready? Here we go. Here's our prayer. Dear God, I am a sinner. I'm under indictment, and I understand it but I believe you love me very much. I believe Jesus paid for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And as well as I can understand this, I put all my trust in Jesus to be my savior. Thank you for forgiving me and thank you for making me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a few more seconds. If you just pray with me, I have a gift for you. And for all of you on campus, you can take this home with you today. There's a box. It won't won't cost you anything. There's a Bible, just like I preach from, a New Spring Bible. There's a book I wrote that answers a lot of questions. There's a journal and some other cool stuff. If you want them to be ready for you when you get back to any part of our info center on campus, there's a bunch of them, you can text the word PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97,000. They'll be ready for you. If you don't want to go through that, just go back to any info center and say, I pray with Mark, and they'll let you have this today. If you're watching online, text PRAYED to 97,000. We'll send it to you. But I promise you, nobody will hassle you, stalk you, ask for your routing number. They just want to give you this. Thank you for being here today. Happy Mother's Day. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. 
For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org. 